0: We 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 system. make it This the
1: Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Hub. Today on the program, I share the audio of an amazing panel that was the plenary roundtable for the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas held in Oakland, California, October 21st to 23rd. On today's program, critical media literacy is a peaceful means to humanitarian ends. And resisting elite censorship and propaganda by supporting a free press helps create a more just and equitable world in a time of multiple existential crises. Today on the Project Censored Show, we'll hear an expert panel that I moderated with Maximilian Alvarez of The Real News Network, Menar Adley of Mint Press News, Robin Anderson, fairness and accuracy in reporting, as well as environmental reporter Eduardo Garcia. Today on the Project Censored Show, critical media literacy... Education as a peaceful means to humanitarian ends. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Recently in October, we held the third annual Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas. It is a major media literacy conference held on the west coast of the United States that also includes all of the Americas, it is among the most diverse of the critical media literacy conferences that takes place annually. On today's show, I'm going to be sharing excerpts of the roundtable plenary that I was able to moderate. We are joined in this panel discussion about the importance of media literacy education, as well as the importance of... Of a truly free press, we're joined by Robin Anderson, who's a professor emerita at Fordham University, also writer for FAIR and Project Censored. You'll also hear from environmental writer Eduardo Garcia. You'll also hear Maximilian Alvarez, the editor in chief at the Real News Network, and Minar Adley, the director of Mint Press News. So without further ado, I'm going to share this panel with you, Critical Media Literacy as a Peaceful Means to Humanitarian Ends. Thank you all for being here. The title is Critical Media Literacy is a Peaceful Mean to Humanitarian Ends. So we wanted to really focus on how critical media literacy is so integral to so many of the other things we do, our activism, teaching as activism. And in an earlier panel, I paraphrased Nicholas Johnson, and I was going to do so again, the one-time FCC commissioner, also uh, Project Censored, a long-time judge. Nicholas Johnson runs through a book called Your Second Priority. And what Johnson was getting at was that regardless of whatever our primary interests or our, our subjects or our passions or our activism, whatever those are, if media democracy and media reform, media access really protecting a free press, a truly free press. If that's not at least the second priority, you're likely to gain little territory or little ground in whatever it is your primary area is. We do that at Project Censored every year, of course, with this annual book that Andy Lee Roth and I edit and put together with a team of so many great people across the country. And that's really kind of an ethos under it all. We are going to be resisting elite censorship and propaganda to create a more just and equitable world in a time of multiple existential crises. Well, look, the subtitle there is already getting us sweating, but the focus here is how critical media literacy and a truly free press can really help us understand and navigate these issues. And of course, teaching and radical and critical pedagogy can really help us create this better world. So I'm going to, to move right into introducing all of our panelists. We have Menar Adley. Menar is the founder and director of Mint Press News, also a regular speaker on responsible journalism, deconstructing war narratives, and journalism startups. Menar is also the director of the nonprofit multimedia project Behind the Headlines. Full disclosure: I'm on the board there, and host of the podcast Mintcast, all media platforms that educate the general public about how the military class work with the media to manufacture consent for war while highlighting the special interests who profit from a state of endless war. Menar is a Palestinian-American journalist who lived under Israeli occupation and apartheid as a preteen, witnessing firsthand war crimes. It was this traumatic experience that led her on her journalistic journey to expose the war machine, and she has certainly done that. She started her career as an independent multimedia journalist covering Midwest and national politics while focusing on civil liberties and social justice issues, posting her reporting and exclusive interviews on her blog, Midpress, which she later turned into Midpress News, this global news source it is today. And Menara is going to talk about how it's also one of the news sources that's under threat and routinely shadow banned, censored, demonetized, and the rest. So the challenges are very, very real. In 2009, Adley also became the first American woman to wear the hijab to anchor report the news in American media. So, Menar, thanks so much for being here with us today. Maximilian Alvarez is editor-in-chief of The Real News Network in Baltimore and the host of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. He is also the author of The Work of Living, a collection of interviews with workers recorded at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, published this year by Orr Books. Prior to joining The Real News, he was an associate editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education and graduated with a dual PhD in history and comparative literature from the University of Michigan. His work has been featured in a range of outlets, including The Nation in These Times, Boston Review, Truthout, and The Baffler. And of course, you can catch him at The Real News Network online. Eduardo Garcia has written news stories and features from more than a dozen countries in his more than 15 years as a journalist. A native of Spain, Eduardo cut his teeth working as a Reuters correspondent in Guatemala, Bolivia, Argentina, Colombia, and Ecuador. In recent years, Eduardo has written for the New York Times, Slate, The Guardian, and Scientific American. I don't think he knew it, but he also was writing for Project Censored. Eduardo regularly writes about renewable energy and electric vehicles for Treehugger and Reuters and is the author of Things You Can Do, How to Fight Climate Change and Reduce Waste, published by Penguin Random House 2022. Last but surely not least is Robin Anderson. Robin is Professor Emerita of Media Studies at Fordham University, an award-winning author, writer, and media commentator Her A Century of Media, A Century of War, won the Alpha Sigma New Book Prize. She currently edits the rutledge Focus book series on media and humanitarian action. Her latest book is Investigating Death in Paradise, a critical study of the BBC show. She appears on Roger Stahl's latest film, Theaters of War. If you have not seen that film, please see it as soon as possible. It is a very powerful and important film on military propaganda. And also, of course, Robin is a Project Censored judge and a longtime Project Censored contributor, has been writing our news abuse chapter for some time. And we're really honored to to have this relationship with Robin for uh, quite a number of years. Her article about Russiagate was recognized as a top 10 Project Censored story in 2018. She also writes media criticism for fairness and accuracy and reporting. Everybody here needs to know about FAIR. If you don't, fair.org. I assume people do, but if for some reason it's escaped your attention, please do check out the extraordinary work that FAIR does out of New York. Um, And everybody is going to contribute basically under the, the broad rubric of the heading, right? But everybody here has something very different, very unique. And with that, I'm going to turn things
2: over to Robin Anderson. To start the panel off, actually, I'm going to read a little definition of what humanitarianism means. It's defined by assumptions that guide global solidarity and posit that all peoples are part of the same humanity, no matter who they are, what they believe in, or where they live. Coded in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, these principles also include the concept of global citizenship and speak of the inherent dignity and equal rights of all members of the human family, and the universe dignity of the human person. In movements for global peace and safety, we assert that all people should be represented at the table and have their voices heard, including those outside the main global media spotlight. So I'm going to also refer, for the end of my talk about war propaganda, to humanitarianism again, toward the end. And I'm like a war person. I just, I, I, I'm going to do the war in Ukraine. So, um, and I saw a cartoon recently about the war in Ukraine, and it expressed what I was really feeling. And I'm sure that it expresses what all of us feel these days. And it's these two people, and they're walking down the a city street in an urban setting. They're a little hunched over. They've got the weight of the world on their shoulders. And the woman says to the man, My desire to be well-informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. This is especially true as we seem to be sliding ever closer to the literal insanity of nuclear annihilation. Without cautions, corporate media seems to be egging on reckless leaders as they make thinly veiled threats of nuclear war. On 60 Minutes, in response to a, a question, what if Putin threatens to use tactical nuclear weapons, Biden said... Don't, don't, don't. You will change the face of war unlike anything else since World War II. And of course, he's referencing the US bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the US and Russia started only a couple of days ago with what the nation called play acting nuclear war, each with their own nuclear games. But as it turns out, it's actually not all that easy linguistically to actually promote the murder of billions of people. In a moment of sanity, the Los Angeles Times admitted that a nuclear exchange involving only 3% of the stockpiles of global nuclear weapons would kill probably a third of the Earth's population within two years, not to mention the devastation to the environment. So news language and headlines have been getting more twisted into truly bizarre Orwellian doublespeak as they tell carefully constructed lies recently about, about this nuclear threat. One pretzel headline, for example, from Politico reads, Putin's nuclear threats are pushing people like Trump and Elon Musk to press for a Ukrainian peace deal. <laughs> a nuclear expert wants to that's dangerous. Business Insider repeated this line of thought with an understandable desire to avoid a nuclear war could actually make the world more dangerous if it means rushing to implement peace. So here we have the classic double fake woven throughout Orwell's 1984, including the slogan war is peace. Of course, we've gotten used to ignorance is strength and freedom is slavery. Let's look at another analogy used to explain how we're learning to love the bomb. Writing for Tom Dispatch, Robert Lipside, used a sports analogy. He said, we're looking for the home run, the big bang, the grand slam. The dream of a game-changing home run has shaped our approach to sports and to geopolitics. Most significantly, it's damaged our ability to solve problems through reason. Well, I think he's got a point there that the bomb as the ultimate home run is probably a good one. I think the loss of reason in diplomacy lies far more directly at the feet of censorship and war propaganda as it has developed since World War I. I'm just going to talk about two propaganda tropes really quickly. Demonized enemies. So there is no better villainous demon than Vladimir Putin. For a public already primed by Russiagate, he is an enemy beyond redemption, not part of the human family, an unspeakable monster, an evil other who cannot be reasoned with. And that goes for Putin, and then Putin's Russia, and then of course Russia. In a world divided by the easy fictional tropes of good versus evil, there's no diplomacy, and whatever depravity is claimed of the enemy is easily and simply accepted. Take, for example, the New York Post story of October 11th that Russian troops were being supplied with Viagra so that they could rape Ukrainian women. <laughs> Newsweek also ran the story saying, when you hear about Russian soldiers equipped with Viagra, it's clearly a military strategy. But like German soldiers in World War One bayoneting babies, like the babies yanked out of their incubators in Kuwait in the first Gulf War, like the current three russian soldiers accused by propagandist of raping of one baby in Ukraine, we've actually heard the Viagra story before. It was another UN-sponsored NATO war in 2011, US ambassador to the UN, Susan Rice claimed Muammar Gaddafi gave his troops Viagra to justify the Clinton-Obama humanitarian war against Libya. That war destroyed the government, left the country in chaos, resulted in the worst human trafficking location on the globe and helped arm Boko Haram in Northern Nigeria. For those of us who've been around trying to expose such absurd claims for years, they are familiar, but for most people, they are not recognizable. They have gone down an Orwellian memory hole. And all the history of war goes right down the same hole, even if it happened less than 10 years ago or even two months ago. Because the explanation of war is so simple, it's good versus evil, and of course, the US is always the good, even though the US perpetrated a senseless, expensive, and brutal war in the Middle East for the entire 21st century. Because the evil enemy is always so responsible and beyond redemption, there is no need to talk about the reasons for war. A well-documented history of aggression and causes, it doesn't matter if you talk about our stake in it, you become an enemy or a dupe of propaganda, a stooge, and now a Putin apologist, or conveniently now a Trumpian, or even an Elon Muskian. The voices of peace are censored by the search algorithms that hide alternative media and the broader dialogue that can be found there. How did we get there? How did we get there? We pushed Russia an awful lot in the years leading up to the invasion of Ukraine. Code Pink and the Peace in Ukraine Coalition have articulated the ahistorical, one-sided, distorted NATO narrative that leaves out NATO's role in conflict. NATO has expanded from 12 countries to 30 countries. The inclusion of Latvia, Estonia, Poland, and Lithuania pushed right up to Russia's borders. In addition, the US supported the 2014 coup in the Ukraine with arms to undermine the Minsk II peace agreement. Russia and Ukraine, so Russia can be engaged in diplomacy because it engaged in 2015 in the Minsk agreement with the Ukraine to end the civil war that followed the 2014 coup that left an estimated 14,000 people dead in Ukraine. Corporate media habitually omit myths and actively deny the documented history of fighting between the swastika flag-waving Azov battalion and Russian separatists. This is what preceded Russia's February invasion of Ukraine. The total lack of context is why we can no longer actually apply a reasoned discourse or find solutions or engage in diplomacy even as we approach nuclear Armageddon. But there is one actually very easy way to deal with war and its related discourses, and that is to simply call the end to war. War and human life, and life on the planet as we know it, are incompatible. War itself is the ultimate humanitarian crime. There is a reason that Threatening war, threatening violence, is a violation of the Articles of War 2.4 in the Geneva Convention. As Chris Hedges always says, war itself is the greatest evil. Though so talk of nuclear weapons proliferated in U.S. news papers between February and August 2022 to the tune of 5,243 stories, very few calls for the end of war, the nuclear threat were included. In fact, only 43 times was the prohibition for nuclear weapons mentioned, and mostly by letters to the editor. Speaking at a event in September, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez said the era of nuclear blackmail must end. The idea that any country could fight and win a nuclear war is deranged. Any use of nuclear weapons could incite a humanitarian armageddon. Well, the war in Ukraine exacerbates the climate crisis, the $40 billion for weapons to Ukraine is four times the budget of the Environmental Protection Agency during an existential climate crisis of wildfires, droughts, storms, and rising sea level. The U.S. military carries an enormous fossil fuel footprint, and it's the largest user of oil on the globe. Even in the face of the lack of anti-war reporting on Ukraine in big media, nearly 60% of Americans support diplomatic efforts to end the war in Ukraine, as soon as possible, they say, even if that means Ukraine having to make concessions to Russia. If we were in the US a functioning democracy, US citizens would be asked whether they want to spend billions of dollars on Ukrainian war weapons or whether they would prefer promoting mediation and a view to a ceasefire and a sustainable peace. Corporate media are failing democracy and failing to disclose our current stark choice between war or life on the planet. They speak in a loud voice that shouts more war in doing so, they censor and poison public discourse and position Americans as targets of propaganda, the denizens of empire, instead of citizens, participants in a democracy who determine their own fates. But as the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists wrote, the doorstep to doom is no place to loiter. It's time to close the door on war, lock it, and throw away the key. Thank you. Our next speaker is Maximilian Alvarez.
0: Mickey, thank you all of you for being here. I have always been uncomfortable calling myself a journalist. Part of that has to do with the fact that I perpetually feel like, through equal parts luck and accident, I sort of snuck into this work through the side door. I never went to J school, never interned at a major news outlet, and the people who did know it. But a bigger part of that discomfort comes from the way that I approach the work that I do. At The Real News Network, we cover a wide range of topics. We are, I'm proud to say, a true multimedia network producing original podcasts like The Mark Steiner Show, Working People, Art for the End Times, original YouTube shows like Rattling the Bars, founded and co-hosted by legendary Black Panther Eddie Conway, who was wrongfully imprisoned for 44 years. The Police Accountability Report, hosted by the intrepid duo of Taya Graham and Stephen Janice, and the Chris Hedges Report. And during my two years at The Real News, we have built up a text publishing arm from scratch, which has enabled us to publish in depth reporting and critical analysis by amazing authors like Kim Kelly, Adam Johnson, Luis Feliz Leon, and more. On top of directing, commissioning, editing, and shaping our content across the network, I also do a lot of reporting myself. I've covered many stories and big topics that are of interest to real news audiences, but my main beat is labor. And just a quick parenthesis: while I thought about talking today about the long death and the recent minor resurgence of the labor beat, once a mainstay of nearly every newspaper in this country, I'm actually going to go in a different direction, and I would highly recommend, if you want to read about that, to check out Christopher R. Martin's great book, No Longer Newsworthy, How the mainstream media abandoned the working class. Every week I conduct long form sprawling and even meandering interviews with workers of all stripes about their lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles. Workers like Johnny, a Delta flight attendant, Albert Elliott, a fired Amazon worker and organizer in North Carolina, Regan, an exotic dancer in North Hollywood, Caleb and Andrew, two graduate student workers at Johns Hopkins University, Jay, a longtime railroad dispatcher, Ariana, a Starbucks worker and organizer in New York, and Leo, who was working on the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig on the day it blew up in 2010, killing 11 workers and causing the largest marine oil spill in human history. When I say I'm uncomfortable calling this work journalism, that's not because I'm paying undue deference to the institution of journalism with a capital J or that I'm being falsely modest about the value of conducting these kinds of interviews. Obviously, I think that it's valuable. I wouldn't have devoted my life to it if I thought otherwise. However, from the moment I first started recording and publishing these interviews for my podcast, Working People, years ago, All the way to now, when I also get to do them for the real news, for my guest segments on breaking points, my new book, The Work of Living, I've been hesitant to call my conversational approach journalistic because, to be blunt, I do not treat any conversational partner as a subject. A person with a perspective on a larger story that I see it as my job to balance out with deferring perspectives and real-time fact-checking. As I tell every worker I talk to before we start recording, their life and their experience is the story. And when you are talking to someone who is as we all are, the foremost expert on their own experience, who the hell are you to fact check them? Of course, if that story involves say a union drive or instances of mistreatment, exploitation, bullying, et cetera, I and my interview partner will try to provide as much factual context as we can for viewers and listeners, but the soul of each conversation is ultimately the search for something deeper than fact. As the great interviewer Studs Terkel, to whom uh, mm-hmm. I, I give a shout out in the subtitle of this book, as Studs once said, and I'm paraphrasing here, a person may not remember the fine lines and every base fact when recounting a memory that is important to them. Maybe it happened on a Wednesday, maybe a Tuesday but they still speak with indelible clarity the truth of their experience. Like studs, I consider it my charge and my vocation to seek out that truth. There's another reason I'm hesitant to call myself a journalist, though, which is painfully apparent to anyone who watches, reads, or listens to me for more than two seconds. I wear what my colleagues in the media would call my biases on my sleeve. I get angry when workers tell me they're being exploited. I express my solidarity and support when they tell me about standing up for themselves and fighting for what they deserve. And when working people do stand up against unjust treatment, when they band together, when they refuse to believe that they are as worthless and expendable as this system makes us out to be, and when they believe in themselves enough to try to change their given circumstances and struggle for a better life, I want them to win. I don't know if that's journalism. But I do know this, if a free press is essential for the possibility of democratic society, but that press does not value the truth that makes society human as much as it values journalistic objectivity and impartial facts, it cannot deliver on its promise. The overwhelming absence of truthful reporting about the lives and experiences of everyday people, working people, the masses, the rank and file, the non-elites, The rabble is, I'd argue, one of the most pervasive and sinister forms of censorship. And what makes it so sinister is the fact that we have grown so accustomed to that absence that we hardly notice that anything's missing. Nor do we feel like it is an anti-democratic, dehumanizing injustice that must be rectified. But it is. It is not an accident, but the ways we consume and share news today and the ways news is packaged as something to be consumed and shared are often directly at odds with our needs as engaged democratic citizens. Every day, with brutally dizzying speed, the content stream drags us along as we struggle to keep our heads above water and stay informed about the world around us, the news from yesterday from this morning is already a distant, fading memory. But how has that information empowered us to act? What can we do with it? What else can we do besides consume it or bite-sized versions of it and move on lest we drown in the flood that's always coming? In headlines, tweets, listicles, and snappy cable segments, the news is meant to command momentary attention and elicit a fleeting response not to encourage deep thought or sustained empathy and emotional investment and solidarity, and certainly not to foster any sort of concerted action by working people to address the issues of the day. And we, in turn, have become the passive spectators and reliable consumers the news industry needs us to be to sustain its business model. Here's the thing, though. Staying informed is not an end in itself. Informed for what? The democratic function and civic necessity of a free press go far beyond informing people about the goings on of their world. They're supposed to empower us to act more effectively in it, to provide the resources we need to be active shapers and stewards of democracy itself. If nothing else, the state of our world today has demonstrated how dangerous and destructive it is to abandon the goal of maintaining an informed and democratically engaged public for the goal of creating a profitable and politically disengaged audience of consumers, and in turn, leaving the questions of governance to be settled by powerful elites, while the rest of us do nothing but watch the world burn through 3D glasses. Because watching is what we've been trained to do. It's all corporate-captured, profit-seeking, status quo-fortifying media really allows us to do. Nowhere is this more apparent, I think, than in the media's tacit and explicit complicity in creating and fortifying the capitalist fiction that democracy and work have nothing to do with each other. We spend most of our lives at work. The workplace is one of the most common and consequential venues of social and existential engineering, and yet our existence in the workplace is largely a black hole of democratic being. A shared non-space where we are not only treated like subhuman organic machines with no democratic or in many cases even basic human rights, but where we are conditioned day by day to believe that this is an unchangeable fact of life like gravity and that we don't deserve anything better and that we do not have the power to do anything about it. this is why I think it's so important to make it impossible for people to ignore the whole human being behind every name tag and job title and service that we depend on. And once we learn to see one another in those human terms and reconnect on that level in the ways that capitalism has essentially made it impossible for us to feel that common humanity that we have with one another. But if we start to revivify those things that connect us, And if we learn to understand the backstories and yearnings and livelihoods of the people who provide the essential labor that we all depend on, and I don't mean that just in terms of the way the government defines it. I mean, parents, I mean, gig workers, I mean, sex workers, I mean, hospital workers, everyone who does the labor that keeps our world afloat. If we see the humanity behind that, we can then feel the solidarity that they have tried to keep us from feeling for so long. And it is the truth in the kind of coverage that we try to do at The Real News and that I think everyone here is also very much dedicated to seeking out. It is that truth that reminds us that we are beautiful, that our lives are valuable, that we deserve to live with dignity, that we have rights, that things don't have to be this way, that they could be better, and that we have it within our power to make it so. The media's role in devaluing and erasing that truth in my opinion has made it unforgivably complicit in the capitalistic scheme to make us into the disempowered exploitable subjects that we are today but we can change that thank you thank you so much maximilian
1: alvarez very powerful listening to the project censored show on pacifica radio we'll continue our conversations about critical media literacy education resisting elite censorship and propaganda and why we need a truly free press to overcome our multiple existential crises stay tuned our next speaker
3: is is Menar Adley. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. I was one person who also felt, after experiencing immense amounts of trauma from living under Israeli occupation and apartheid, this drive, this fire beneath my feet to change the face of media. Mid-Press News is now just about 10 years old, and we have been leading an independent media revolution for the past decade in exposing the special interests and the profiteers that are driving the military industrial complex. Our economy today is driven and fueled by the blood and murder of people abroad. And that's been kind of the theme that we're hearing from other panelists. When I was nine years old, my parents basically uprooted us from the pristine suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and moved us overseas to where their home country was, which was Palestine. And so I had this rare experience as an American preteen to move from this very serene and life of excess and peace from the suburbs of Minneapolis to go live under what is known today as one of the worst apartheid regimes that we have seen in our modern history. And so from nine years old to about 12 years old, I witnessed grave human rights abuses from children being blocked from going to school and having to defend themselves. I watched them throw rocks to try to get through checkpoints. I've had my own family members kidnapped by Israeli settlers and soldiers, beaten tortured. I've had family members' elementary schools have bombs planted in them by Israeli settlers. I have lived through militarized curfews, have ridden in a taxi and in vans as well to get through militarized checkpoints where Israeli soldiers were shooting at civilians. I remember at 10 years old, I don't know, again, how my parents allowed this, but war becomes normal when you're growing up in war. But we would sit on our rooftops and watch airplanes and jets drop bombs on homes in Ramallah. And so this was the reality that I lived through as a preteen. And so coming back to live in the United States at the age of 12, I was completely culture shocked. I was suffering from PTSD. My mind was constantly racing and thinking about the war that I had left behind. The children in my classrooms, you know, did they make it through the checkpoints that day, were they able to make it to school? And I would think about my family who had had their water cut off, the curfews. I used to witness home demolitions in my own neighborhood. So a lot of fear. I was living with that fear, even though now I was back in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But it was really interesting. This was just a couple of months before 9-11. And so I would turn on the news to keep up to date with what was happening overseas. And I would see how the media would portray Palestinians as terrorists and Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East defending itself. Islam was always portrayed in a very demonizing way where women were not allowed to speak for themselves. And the men, the Muslim men, were always portrayed and characterized as very abusive, aggressive, toxic, masculine caricatures. And so this was really my first experience with propaganda at 12 years old. And I remember that this was really evident to me because I had witnessed such a contrast when I was overseas. And within a couple of months, 9-11 happened. And once again, I was sitting in my classroom, as now 13 years old, witnessing how after the tragic events of 9-11, an entire religion was blamed for that event. And the media, together, were beating the drums of war to justify the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it was Muslim women that were continuously being used to justify these wars, as if Muslim women needed to be saved look at afghanistan now the united states ended up as always actually supporting right-wing elements through these political movements that oppress women that have nothing to do with islam but are more in a form to control populations to support of course the military-industrial complex and endless war and so these experiences really shaped my view as now a teenager, as a Palestinian American and Muslim teenager, growing up in this post 9-11 world. And it became the fuel and drive to want to change the face of journalism. And that's really where MIT was birthed. I did work within corporate media very briefly when I would pitch stories about Israeli occupation and apartheid, even stories about veterans, US military veterans committing suicide at record rates, they would always dismiss my stories. And so it became very evident that there was no place for me within corporate media. maybe I could if I didn't wanna talk about those real issues, but I would just blend right in like everybody else. And so Mint Press was born a couple of years after I graduated from college. Today, we look at the United States ranking number 42 on the Press Freedom Index. And you have to wonder how in America, the beacon of democracy and press freedoms can rank number 42. Well, I will tell you, as someone who has led an independent media outlet, I have witnessed firsthand in real time just how the state of permanent war has allowed for a massive crackdown back at home to diminish any sort of free flow of information to ensure that the news that we receive from within corporate media or any platform fits in with the mainstream establishment narratives and does not push back to any State Department line. And one of the first instances that we saw that was a major crackdown on alternative media was in 2010, actually, when WikiLeaks was targeted by PayPal, Visa, and MasterCard WikiLeaks was sanctioned basically by these financial institutions for publishing war logs exposing U.S. war crimes being committed in Afghanistan and in Iraq and also corruption and surveillance issues and and other things that we the people are meant to know but were hidden from us from plain sight. And so that was one of the first reasons of WikiLeaks being targeted. And then after the 2016 election... The war against WikiLeaks escalated and the war against independent media escalated under the guise of fighting fake news and propaganda. And this was really when we started seeing the intersection between the military industrial complex, major weapons manufacturers, the state of Israel, even working hand in hand with social media, big tech giants like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and others, and now even TikTok where intelligence agencies are dictating what can and cannot make it through news feeds and how things are flagged, whether they're real news or fake news. And so this is when we saw the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which partnered up with YouTube to flag so-called fake news. And we have to remember who the Anti-Defamation League is. In the 1960s, the FBI investigated the ADL as acting as a foreign agent to Israel. It spied on anti-apartheid activists and sent their findings to Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad. And the ADL currently now targets Palestinian dissent and monitors all Palestinian content on YouTube and ensures that those posts exposing Israeli crimes are taken down. And we have to remember that the ADL is who targeted Ilhan Omar their campaign against her when she exposed the Israel lobby's money influence within the U.S. political system. And then we have NewsGuard. These are things that we exposed at Midpress. NewsGuard, we actually broke the story on NewsGuard. It is an online news rating system. This is possibly one of the most terrifying things that everybody should be looking out for, especially if you work in academia, because NewsGuard is an online news rating system that is being placed in all public libraries. It will be automatic, and it's being placed on all Microsoft devices already. If You have an iOS device and all of their Microsoft browsers. The way NewsGuard works is that just like after 9-11, there was a rating system. Red is like, you know, really scary. Uh, Green is like really good. (laughs) NewsGuard is rating news websites and all websites on transparency. What's really scary about this is that NewsGuard is founded and led by former head of the CIA, Michael Hayden, former Secretary of Homeland Security Tom Ridge, and self-described chief propagandist for the Obama State Department, Richard Stengel. And so these people who are trying to act as the arbiters of truth are in fact working with the national security state to ensure that alternative and independent media Um, don't exist. And so we've been targeted by NewsGuard, We've given a red rating. And so why this matters is because as NewsGuard expands, it will allow for more sanctioning and financial sanctioning websites to receive donations and block donations. And most recently, we were the target of PayPal sanctioning, just like WikiLeaks. And it was actually leaked to us that British intelligence gave the orders to PayPal to sanctioned Mint Press and Block Mitt Press from receiving donations. And so our account was shut down. And so was consortium news to independent media outlets. And I just want to remind everybody that today with the war in Ukraine raging on, we can't forget that we basically entered wartime. We are living in an actual intellectual no-fly zone. And so that's why it's so important for people to turn to independent media and to fund our own media. If we don't have access to any sort of information, then we are highly susceptible to manipulation. Thank you. Next, we have
4: Eduardo Garcia. I want to talk about the climate and the censorship that, in my point of view, we see in mainstream media or corporate media. From my point, I want to talk from my point of view as, as a journalist who actually writes for a number of different media organizations. I mean, you mentioned three hire before that I cover renewable energy and electric cars for a few years now, for a couple of years. I started working for writers a few months ago covering renewable energy, so that's like a mainstream media Organization, but I can definitely learn a lot and have a lot of access to CEOs and policy makers from that point of view. That's the walk, that's the, the line that I uh, walk in. You know, moving from my own like freelance reporting or my own book writing to working for mainstream media organizations, you have to earn money somehow. And and sometimes you can make a difference as well within within big corporations. You have access to a big audience, and sometimes you can actually push to report on the things that you think are more relevant. This, you know, it's difficult, it's a challenge, but. Is something that, in my experience, can be done. So, I think, you know, having said that, having talking a little bit from where I come from, uh, I think the main issue with climate reporting is that the issue of climate change is being underreported. We've seen in the the past few years an increase in coverage, especially from mainstream media organizations like New York Times and the Washington Post that have their own climate change themes, but they are actually covering a very, very narrow angle of the story, which is kind of like, the weather events that are causing devastation throughout the world we have a lot of focus on that but not a lot of focus from my point of view on the actual causes of the crisis we report symptoms but not the problem and the problem is fossil fuel and i think that obviously corporate media is so embedded in the system that it's very hard for them to actually look at that angle i wanted to talk a little bit about how they cover climate change and how they cover climate change solutions and i think a lot of the focus that we've seen in recent years is that renewable energy and electric vehicles are going to fix the problem. And I think that's just like the narrative that we keep hearing all over again. And also the narrative that the you know, Biden administration is putting forward. I'm having to say that the Biden administration is doing a lot to push that agenda. There's a big problem with that because renewable energy is not growing fast enough. The International Energy Agency last year say that renewable energy is not growing fast enough. It has to grow at least twice as fast, and that's not happening. That has been happening over the past two years and it's definitely not happening this year because coal and natural gas uh, power production are increasing because of the energy crisis created by the war in ukraine and, and the shortages that has caused in europe and higher prices and we actually we, we're seeing an increase in coal production uh power generation this year and next so what we're going to see is probably an increase in, in, in emissions there's very little talk about you know the actual causes of the polling how we can actually do more about that. And I think, you know, one of the main issues here would be to actually reduce our energy consumption. with renewable energies is growing at a very slow pace and actually the demand for energy is going faster. So the best way to, to actually fix that would be to reduce our energy consumption. But there's not really talk about that. The Biden administration and other countries, especially in Europe, are actually not talking about how we can reduce energy and energy that we actually waste. We waste a lot of energy, especially to, you know, on a personal level. And that's kind of like what my book is about in terms of heating and cooling pumps uh, in terms of driving. You know, in the U.S., about two thirds of all the cars that are sold every year are SUVs or pickup trucks. Those are cars that are we don't need. We don't need big cars for actually, you know, transport ourselves around. About two thirds of the trips that U.S. drivers take are under five miles. Um, we don't need an SUV for that. We don't need a pickup truck for that. You know, more often than not, smaller forms of transportation or public transport will be much better to actually get places. And there's a little talk about that in corporate video. We'll talk about that from the Biden administration. Mainstream car makers, legacy car makers like Ford and GM, are actually pushing large electric cars now into the market. We have dozens of SUVs and pickup trucks. Electric cars coming in the market over the next few months. I mean, one of the I like talking about this because i think it's so representative but you know the biggest car in the u.s over the past 70 years can anyone guess or do you guys know which is the best selling car in the u.s for the past four decades the f-150 so you know the four f-150 Ford just came out with the electric car this year or late last year and that's you know very likely to be the best selling electric car i mean they already like announced they're going to double the production of that car the problem with the F-150 is that it has a battery that weighs 2,000 pounds. That battery itself is as heavy as a small size, you know, you car in the US like a Honda Civic. It's just the battery itself, mm-hmm. and that battery has hundreds of pounds worth of cobalt, lithium, nickel, and manganese. Yeah. Those minerals need to be extracted, processed, transported, assembled, and put into that battery somewhere, somehow. And that requires tremendous amounts of energy. Mainstream media again are not saying that the carbon emissions of producing an electric car are much higher than the carbon emissions for producing a gas car. And according to the study that was published last year, I mean, the production of a Tesla Model 3 emits 12.2 tons of greenhouse gases. That's 65% more than the production of a Toyota Rav4. So it's considerably higher. Obviously, in the long term, emissions from an electric car are much lower. But what we're facing in the short term is like millions, tens of millions of electric cars going to the roads over the next decade. And the short term emissions of that are going to be huge. Mm-hmm. There's very little talk about that. So I think those are, you know, the main two angles that we're hearing a lot about. There's move to electric cars. but There's very little or actually in the U.S. no talk whatsoever about promoting public transportation. I have some data in my book about that and off the top of my head. I think that in the US over the past ten years, there were just 10 miles of new train tracks built in the whole country, which is ridiculous. And I think that's been underreported. We don't have a corporate leader that is actually emphasizing the real problem and the real solution. So a lot of my thinking is like, how can we get that? Because it's really not not out there. And to be like properly informed when it comes to climate change. Do a lot of digging, do a lot of research. Talk to as many people as possible, and, and and kind of like think critically. Actually, the best-selling electric car last year in the whole world was a car that probably no one's heard about. It's called the Hongwang Mini. It's a small city car that is the best-selling car now in China and therefore in the whole world, as it's selling like you know. And that car itself actually weighs six times less than the electric hammer which is going to be launched here in the U.S. this year. And it's also very likely a best seller. six times. So one car here will very likely come mainstream in in U.S. roads. It's actually six times as big as the main electric car that's being now sold in China the best-selling electric car in China. I'm talking about my own personal experience. I've tried to report about these issues. Mm-hmm. Last year, I actually was writing for um, a renewable energy company. And, and when I wrote a story about this, they cut a lot of stuff out. They just didn't want it to be there. They say that I was being too negative. I'm not saying that electric cars are not part of the solution. They are part of the solution, but they can't be the main thing. You know, we need to move away from that. We need to move away to share forms of transportation smaller forms of transportation and walking and biking. And I think that's just like really important. We don't need, you know, new stuff, new things. And I think part of this censorship as well is that I think, you know, a lot of the solutions that we have are actually from minority groups, from from indigenous groups. And those people actually are obviously underrepresented in the media. But I think those are the voices that we need to hear more from, you know, especially when it comes to food production which is also linked to about a third of the emissions that we generate, and um, really caring for the environment. And a lot of that censorship is in that direction. I mean, those people that don't have a voice, don't have access to the corporate media outlets, and those are, I think that will be key for us to be better informed and to know more about the solutions to the problem. Another aspect that I wanted to talk about that I think is being underreported is plastics. Plastics themselves are enough to actually, if you don't change, you don't actually get rid of the plastics, we won't be able to reduce emissions to the degree that we need. And plastic production in the US is increasing substantially. Not only increasing, but also the US exporting more and more natural gas to other countries that use it to produce plastics. And I wanna leave you with this, I think very useful statistic. 42% of all the plastic that we produce in the world are single-use plastics they are used just once and thrown away instantly so again that's another issue that's being under that's another issue that we don't hear enough about and that's part of the silencing that i think is going on in incorporating them. In. thank you eduardo
1: thank robin anderson eduardo garcia maximilian alvarez and our adley for those presentations
5: who has a question here who wants to make a question or a comment i'm ukrainian and you can imagine that i have my a bit different vision on what was Robin saying, because if we were listening to Robin's talk, it would we would have this idea that it's so easy to it's so simply you were saying to end the war and in twenty nineteen like Zelensky actually came with this slogan, with this narrative. We we'll, should just stop shooting and we'll end the work. And unfortunately, for this four years, that didn't work out well and it escalated in February. And, uh, and out of this solidarity and respect to all the Iranians and to my relatives who are there fighting for their country and they just don't want Russia to come back to our houses, I wanted to say that we should be very critical I'm very critical of my own government in Ukraine and of all the actions uh, of other governments. And we should be very critical and double check and fact-check all the information at this uh, all independent media and uh are there like independent news outlets, and there are so many. Uh, fact uh checking agencies right now in ukraine who are doing that online all the time and they are fact checking the even the ukrainian information the Russian information so that's like impossible to digest rush lots of like tons of information but I am I just my point is that we should be very critical and uh double check and fact check all the effect.
3: Anybody have anything to say? Obviously Russia is dropping bombs and so I can't forget to imagine what any Ukrainian person is feeling. There's probably a lot of terrifying emotions having been lived through bombs myself. My heart goes out to you and to your family. I think, you know, I can speak as an American journalist. You know, when I do reporting about Russia-Ukraine crisis, I report from the perspective of our First Amendment, which is to hold my government accountable. You know, whether Russia is right or wrong, you know, that's one thing, but my job and my role as an independent journalist in my country is to report on how my government is engaged in this war. And so having covered so many different wars, sending weapons to Ukraine or backing, or even, you know, putting more pressure on Russia, NATO's actions to the past, you know, 20 years or so to encircle Russia, expanding US military bases, I mean, that's my job to expose those aspects. Russia, just like any other country, has its own problems. It is not a perfect country. And so I just want to say that, you know, from looking at like our coverage of the Ukraine-Russia war, you know, we're not in a position to defend Russia or to denounce Russia. The Ukrainian refugee crisis is, is horrifying. It's something very, very sad. But it begs the question, you know, Palestinians make up the largest refugee crisis in the world. And they don't get any of that kind of coverage within US corporate media. And so if we're gonna talk about US corporate media and fact checking, you're absolutely right. But our media works hand in hand with the war machine. I and mean, we have weapons manufacturers who are employed, their employees and their PR arms are employed at CNN. They're employed at the Washington Post. They're employed in the Wall Street Journal. We did an analysis at Mint press, 90% of the columns written in the wall street journal the washington post and at the new york times were written by employees of weapons manufacturers and think tanks that that profit from war so we are fact checking we are looking at these things but we're doing it from a perspective of holding our own establishment accountable because obviously we're doing it from the perspective of we don't want more war we want the ukrainian people to live in peace just like we want any brown person around the world to live in peace. Ukrainian lives don't matter more than the lives of people in Yemen, where 23 million people are starving. And every single day, there's a blockade against the people against Yemen. You know, we have to look at the media from that perspective of, you know, are we truly holding everybody at the same level of accountability? So that's where we have to come at. And I think that's what makes independent media different within American media, because the mainstream corporate media only gives one perspective, which and it is to promote that war. Whereas, alternative media, independent media, they're going to talk about the refugees. They're going to talk about how Russia shouldn't be dropping bombs. But they're also going to look at why this narrative is being pushed and who's profiting off of this conflict. And I think that's really, really important to do as well.
0: Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Because they own my special interest that fund their That's
1: why to... You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.